We're reading from Luther's works, Linker edition, volume 14, page 252, the 21st Sunday after Trinity. And it says that this sermon is found in all the editions of the church apostle and in five pamphlet editions printed at Wiss Wittenberg in 1522, 23, and 24. The title of one pamphlet reads, A Sermon on the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, a nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum and so forth, in which is shown how faith once begun should be increased and laid hold of. Martin Luther, 1524, Wittenberg. The text is John 4, 46-54. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The noble man saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he now was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Today's gospel pictures to us a remarkable example of faith, where St. John carefully notes at three different times that the nobleman believed. And we may indeed be greatly moved by the fact and ask, what kind of faith must he have had that the evangelist mentioned it so often? Now, I've counted two times in here, but Luther found three times. Well... Let's read, see what he says. We've already learned so much about faith in the gospel, I think we should rightly understand it by now, but since it ever occurs again and again, we are obliged to discuss it frequently. In the first place, I've often said that faith through the gospel fully brings the Lord Jesus with all his riches home to every man and that one Christian has just as much as another. The baptized child today has not less than St. Peter and all the saints in heaven. We're all equal and alike in reference to faith. One person has this treasure just as full and complete as another. Our gospel lesson speaks further then of the increase of faith, and here there is a difference. Although faith fully possesses Christ and all his riches, yet it must nevertheless be continually kept in motion and exercised so that it may have assurance and firmly retain its treasures.
There is a difference between having a thing and also between firmly keeping hold of it, between a strong and a weak faith. Such a great treasure should be firmly seized and well guarded so that it may not be so easily lost or taken from us. I may have it indeed in its entirety, although I hold it only in a paper sack, but it's not so well preserved as if I had it locked in an iron chest. Therefore we must so live on the earth, not that we think of something different that is better to acquire than what we already possess, but that we strive to lay hold of the treasure more and more firmly and securely from day to day. We have no reason to seek anything more than faith, but here we must see to it how faith may grow and become stronger. Thus we read in the gospel that although the disciples of Christ without doubt believed, for otherwise they had not followed him, yet he often rebuked them on account of their weak faith. They had indeed faith, but when it was put to the test, they let it sink and did not support it. So it is with all Christians, where faith is not continually kept in motion and exercised, it weakens and decreases so that it must indeed vanish. And yet we do not see nor feel this weakness ourselves, except in the times of need and temptation, when unbelief rages too strongly. And yet for that very reason, faith must have temptations in which it may battle and grow. Therefore, it's not as the idle babblers among the theologians of the schools taught who make out that we are lazy and careless. Now, I don't know who he's talking about in this next couple sentences, whether they say it or they say that we say it. Judge according to what he says that follows, I guess. By saying... Now, whether we're saying it or they saying it, I don't know. If one have the smallest drop or spark of love and faith, he will be saved. Scriptures teach that one must increase in progress. True it is that you possess Christ through faith, although you only hold the treasure in a poor cloth. Yet you must see to it that you firmly lay hold of him and let no power rob you of him. I like to think that Luther was the one that said that, because it's true. If one has a small drop or spark of love and faith, he will be saved. But Luther also, I think, is warning that the scriptures teach also that one must increase and progress. As he says here, I'll repeat it all, I guess. True it is that you possess Christ through faith, Although you only hold the treasure in a poor cloth, yet you must see to it that you firmly lay hold of him and let no power rob you of him. Consequently, this nobleman or officer, whoever he was, I hold he was a courtier of King Herod, was so far in faith that he believed if he could bring Christ into his home, he would then surely heal his son. For he had heard God's word or gospel, the gospel of Christ, that he cheerfully helped every person that was brought to him, refused no one his favor. His faith laid hold of this, and that was the reason he went to Christ.
For if his heart had been kept in suspense, so that he had thought, who knows whether he can help you or will help you, he would not have gone to him. Therefore it is certain that he had beforehand so conceived of Christ and believed that he would help him. The nature and manner of faith are to picture and mirror the goodness of Christ thus in the heart of man. Therefore the epistle to the Hebrews says in 11.1, 1, Faith is a substance of things hoped for, that is, of something good, the grace and goodness of God. Now the faith of this man stood so that if he had continued in it, he would without a doubt have been saved, and the Lord would have had pleasure in it. However, he dealt severely with them, found an imperfection in his faith, chastised him, and said, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will in no wise believe. How does this agree with what I said before? If faith and a good confidence in him brought the nobleman to Christ, how can he then say, You will in no wise believe unless you see signs? If faith had brought him already to Christ, how could Christ say to him, You will in no wise believe unless you see signs? But as I said, he wishes to show him that his faith is not yet strong enough, for he still clings only to the seeing and the experience of the bodily presence of Christ. Likewise did Christ chastise the disciples in the boat when the storm came, and he said to them, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? As if he were to say, Where is your faith now? Therefore, however good and genuine faith may be, it falls back when it comes to a battle, unless it has been well disciplined and has grown strong. Therefore, you should not imagine it enough if you've commenced to believe, but you must diligently watch that your faith continue firm, or it will vanish. You are to see how you may retain this treasure you've embraced. For Satan concentrates all his skill and strength on how to tear it out of your heart. Therefore, the growth of your faith is truly as necessary as its beginning, and indeed more so. But all is the work of God. The young milk faith is sweet and weak, but when long marches are required and faith is attacked, then God must strengthen it, or it will not hold the field of battle. Therefore, this man would not have been helped by the faith he had at first. He would have been forced to retreat had not Christ come and strengthened them. The nobleman believed if he came to him in his house, he could surely heal his son. Then Christ gave him a rebuke, a bitter and hard answer. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will in no wise believe. And with these words he gives faith a scornful rebuff that it cannot stand. The poor man was terrified, and his faith at once began to sink and to vanish. Therefore he says, Sir, come down, ere my child die, as if he would say, Yes, 
you must hasten and come and yourself be present or my son will die. Here Christ now bestows upon him a stronger faith as God does upon all whom he strengthens in faith and raises him thus to a higher degree or plane that he may become strong and believe in a different way than he did before. And he speaks thus to the Father, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Had he thus said to him before that his son would live, he would have been unable to believe it. But now he believes when faith springs forth in his heart, and he begets in him another faith, so that he becomes a different man. Therefore the Lord adds to his great rebuke great strength. For he must now cling to that which he does not see, for he did not before believe that Christ had such power and influence that he could heal his son when he did not see him and was not present with him. It is truly strong faith that a heart can believe what it does not see and understand, contrary to all the senses and reason, and can cling only to God's word. Here there is nothing manifest except that he believed. Otherwise he would have received no help. In faith one must look to nothing but the word of God. Whoever permits anything else to be pictured in his eyes is already lost. Faith clings to the naked and pure word, neither to its works nor to its merits. If your heart does not thus stand naked, your cause is lost. Let us now take an example of this. When a priest, nun, or monk boasts that he has maintained his chastity saying, by saying many masses, fasting often, praying much and the like, and then does not keep in mind God's word but his own good works and builds upon them so that he thinks God must consequently hear him, then he is lost. For as long as this picture is in the mind, then faith cannot be there. Therefore one one is about to die and death is present, and he looks around for a way of escape, and for the first step he should take. Then Satan is at hand and pictures to him how dreadful and horrible death is. Besides, he sees hell and God's judgment before his very eyes. Then Satan is victorious, for there is no help as long as this is before his eyes. If he were wise and pictured nothing else in his heart and continued to cling to the word of God alone, he would live. For that is a living word. Therefore, whoever clings to the word must stand where the living and eternal word stands. However, this is exceedingly difficult to do, for here you see how hard it was for this nobleman, also for the apostles in the gospel, when they were on the boat, in a they were on the water in a boat, and the boat was about to sink, and the waves beat into the boat. So that death was before their eyes, then they lost their hold on the word. Had they firmly believed and said, Here we have the word of God, here is Christ. Where he is, there we are also. There would have been no danger. But since they did not have such faith, they would have had to sink and perish had not Christ come to their help. 
Just so it was with Peter when he was walking on the sea and coming to Christ. As long as he held to the word, the water had to bear him up. But when he turned his eyes from Christ and he let the word go, then he saw the wind blowing and he began to sink. Therefore I said, we must let go of everything and cling only to the word. If we have laid hold of that, then let rage and roar the world, death, sin, hell, and all misfortune. But if you let go the word, then you must perish. This we see also in people who seek temporal nourishment. When they have sufficient and their house and barn are full, they easily trust in God and say, We have a gracious God. But when they have nothing, they begin to doubt. Then their faith vanishes. For they picture before their eyes that there is nothing at hand and not any provision in store, and they know not how they shall exist. Thus care and worry drive faith out of their heart. But if they would lay hold of God's word, they would think thus, My God lives. He assures me he will sustain my life. I'll go forth and labor. He'll make everything right. As Christ says in Matthew 6:33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If I retained this word and would cast the other out of my mind, I would not come into need. But as long as you picture before your eyes your poverty, then you cannot believe. This nobleman doubtless had also a picture in his eyes that he might have thought. He will not grant my request. He'll give me a hard answer. Will not accompany me home. Will cruelly turn me away. Had he fixed his eyes upon such treatment, he would have been lost. But since he turned his eyes from such thoughts, Christ later gives him blessed consolation and says, Go thy way, thy son liveth. This is the nature and way of faith. Thus God deals with us when he wishes to strengthen us. This is also what St. Paul means in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glory of the Lord with Paul is the knowledge of God, Moses also possessed a glory, the knowledge and understanding of the law. When I have a knowledge of the law, I look into his clear countenance and into his pure light. But now we have passed through that and have a higher knowledge of Christ our Lord. Whoever knows him as a man who helps in time of need and gives power to fulfill the law through whom we have acquired the forgiveness of sins, in that way he mirrors his glory in us. That is, as the rays of the sun are reflected in the water or in a mirror, so Christ reflects himself and gives forth a luster from himself in our hearts in a way that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another so that we daily increase and more clearly know and understand the Lord. Then we shall be changed and transformed into the same image 
in a way that we all will be one bread with Christ. This is not accomplished in that we ourselves do it by virtue of our own power, but God, who is a spirit, must do it. For even if the Holy Spirit began such glory or illumination in us, even the Holy Spirit itself began it and would later forsake us, then we would be as we were before. Now, we ought to be so armed that we do not remain standing still at the first degree, but continually increase. Therefore, the cross, temptation, and opposition must come by means of which faith will grow and become strong. And as the glory of faith increases, the mortification of the body also increases. The stronger faith is, the weaker will the flesh be, and the smaller the faith, the stronger the flesh, and the less will the flesh be denied. Repeat it. Stronger the faith is, the weaker will the flesh be, and the smaller the faith, the stronger the flesh, and the less will the flesh be denied. We are apt to think, if I shall continually help my neighbor, what will become of me? To what will I come at last? But if we had mirrored in us, M-I-R-R-O-R-E-D, mirror, like a mirror, we had a picture in us, or mirror, of true faith and Christ. We would not doubt that we should have enough, but we would remember that God will surely come to our assistance when the crisis comes. But if we are lost in such a little tempest, what will we do in the great conflicts of the soul? See, in this way, faith is exercised and increased. If we go forth and are today as yesterday, tomorrow as today, that is not a Christian life. Now the second thing for which John praises this man is that he increased in faith. In the third place he says, while he was going home, his servants met him and said to him that his son lived. He experienced that his son began to amend in the very hour that the Lord had said to him, Thy son liveth, and he believed in his whole house. Here the evangelist says again that he believed, but if he had not believed heretofore, why did he come to Christ was the question now. Luther says that this is a more perfect faith that was confirmed by the miracle. In this manner, our Lord God deals with us to make us more perfect and raise us ever to a higher plane of faith. We pass through this condition, we thus come into the experience and become assured of our faith. As we see here that the nobleman overcomes all difficulties like an iconoclast does, who tears down pictures and images receives applause and becomes certain of his cause, in that he has experienced it, finds that he is helped by faith, and all agree, the time, the miracle, and the word, with the faith. What then will he now believe? Not that his son had been healed, for this kind of faith is now at, at an end. The healing has been done, and it is now a thing of the past. 
he sees before his eyes that his son lives. But out of his experience comes forth another faith that Christ would in the future continue to help him out of other troubles and whatever dark pictures might rise before him. That's what he believed. If the Lord had said to him, go and die, he would have replied, although I do not know whether I shall go or where the end is. Yet since I tried before what faith is, I will again cling to the word. You helped me once when I could not see nor understand. You will now again help me. Moreover, if Christ had said to him, Leave home and land and your possessions and come, follow me, he would not have thought, Yes, but how shall I support myself? No doubt the picture would have appeared before his eyes. Following Christ is everything in abundance. Here is nothing. Shall I let go of that? Following Christ, what will I come to? Now he thinks, although nothing is here and I see nothing, I will nevertheless cling to the word. He will surely help me. I tried it before. This is impossible for reason, but faith can do all things. Therefore, faith exercises itself in various temptations, and every day new temptations arise. For the former experiences do not always return, as one sees here. This nobleman has already made use of one work of faith, which will now never return again. But he must now try another. Therefore, the oftener a person experiences the same temptation, the better it is for him. The more he triumphs over the storm, and the firmer he lays hold of Christ, becomes skilled so to be ready to bear all that is laid upon him. In the like manner it went with the holy patriarchs, and thus it always goes with us, so that I believe what has taken place in former times is of no help to me, but my faith must always turn its attention to the things of the future. Therefore, when God called Abraham to depart out of his own country, he did it and believed God. Now, when he came into that country, God called him to go into another, and later into another. Thus he continually increased in faith, and later he became so assured and had traced and experienced how God dealt with him and became such a perfect character that he was willing to offer his own son as a sacrifice to God. From this it follows, whoever is greatly tried and disciplined in this way faces death much more willingly. Thus you see how an example of growing faith is here portrayed. It is now clear enough, therefore take it well to heart. Every person has indeed his own experiences in life by which he may exercise his faith to trust God to help him. Thus he will be able to prove how God helps him, and he can thus make progress and grow in faith. As soon as one experience ends, another always begins, so that we may see and grasp the truth that our Lord God is true. We have the confidence that he will nourish and sustain our bodies 
we can also surely believe that he will save our souls. I have now spoken enough about faith. The other part of this gospel on love, everyone can easily understand for himself. It's clearly enough set forth, and it's not necessary to speak much about how Christ served and helped this nobleman. He had no advantage or gain from it himself, but he did it purely, gratuitously, out of love. Also, you see how the nobleman became a servant of his son. Whatever there is more in this gospel belongs to its spiritual significance and its exposition word for word we will commend to the quiet and wise spirits. Now on page 262, we have a second sermon. Same text, John 4, 46 to 54. This sermon is printed, it says here, in all the editions of the Church Apostle and in three pamphlet editions, all of which appeared at Wittenberg in one year, 1526. All, the title of all three is the same. In those days they gave long titles. Whole paragraph here it says, A Sermon for the 21st Sunday After Pentecost on the True Nature of Faith, of the nature of the wickedness of the devil our adversary, the saying of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. In Matthew 13, Faith is like a grain of mustard seed. Richly explained and adorned with beautiful examples from Moses, St. Peter, and others. How faith begins like a blossoming tree. Martin Luther Wittenberg, 1526. So we begin on page 263. This is a little bit longer than the last sermon. A beautiful example of faith is presented in this gospel, exhibiting as it does the nature and character of faith, namely that it is to increase and become perfect, and it portrays faith in a way as to show that it's not a quiet and idle, but a living, restless thing that either retrogrades, that goes back, or advances, lives and moves. And where this does not occur, faith does not exist, but only a lifeless notion of the heart concerning God. For true living faith, which the Holy Spirit pours into the heart, cannot be inactive. This I say for the purpose that no one may be sure, even if he has attained faith, that he now has everything. With this it shall not stop, for it's not sufficient to begin, but one must constantly grow and increase, continue learning to know God better. For on the other hand, it's not the nature and custom of our enemy, the devil, to be idle, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. If then the devil neither sleeps nor rests, it's not right for a Christian to be idle and fold his hands, but he is to consider how he may fortify himself against the power of this devil. For he is not called the prince of this world in vain, as today's epistle teaches in Ephesians. 
And that's Ephesians 6.12, the epistle text. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then it says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. This prince rules the world, howls and rages, is mad and foolish, cannot bear that a Christian progresses, nor is it to be wondered at, for thereby a rupture is made in his kingdom, and his net is broken. Hence, wherever possible, he hinders the growth and development of the Christian life. When therefore the fire of faith is kindled and burned, burns, the devil feels it and becomes aware of it. He immediately grasps it with all his cunning. For he knows how his kingdom is endangered by it. Therefore he endeavors with great zeal to protect his kingdom and exerts himself to retain all under his obedience. Certain it is, therefore, that when a person begins to believe, temptation and persecution will be surely close, will be surely closely to follow him. And if this does not occur, it's a sign his faith is not true, and he has not rightly apprehended the gospel. For that rogue the devil has a sharp vision and easily becomes conscious of the presence of a true Christian. Therefore he exerts himself to entrap him, and surrounds and attacks him on all sides, for he cannot bear that anyone should desert his kingdom. Therefore it's dangerous to live heedlessly, for the devil is likely to take us by surprise. This happens even to the great ones among the saints, who rightly apprehend the word of God. They regard themselves as standing securely, then this rogue is behind them, he strikes them down and wrestles with them until they're vanquished. Behold what happened to the great men of God, to Moses, to Aaron, and to the princes of Judah. They had an excellent faith when they led the people out of Egypt, and all the people went in faith through the Red Sea, through death, through the wilderness, through many other wonderful experiences in which they manifested their faith, but at last they came to a point where everything was ruined. They feared that they would have to die of hunger and thirst in the parched wilderness. Is it not a pity that after manifesting their faith in so many great trials, going into and through death, wrestling with and overcoming it, when they regarded themselves at their very best, they should fall, allowing themselves be overcome by their belly, and murmur against God, and be so fiercely attacked that they succumb, and all be overthrown by Satan. Hence, no one is secure, unless his faith continues to grow stronger and stronger. Moses, who had such an exceedingly strong faith, also fell when he was to strike water out of the rock with his rod, he doubted and said to the people, Numbers 20.10, Hear now, ye rebels, 
shall we bring forth water out of this rock. Now you know what it says in Luther's translation? In brackets it says here that it says it this way. According to Luther's translation it says, Come here, let us see if we can bring forth water out of this rock for you. The good man Moses, who had performed so many miracles, is tripped by reason, falls into carnal thoughts, fearing that the unbelief of the people would hinder the great miracle and sign which God had promised. I added that, but that was true. God had promised when God says something, it will come to pass, right? He thought the unbelief of the people would hinder it. But he should have adhered firmly to the word of God and esteemed that higher, greater, stronger, and more efficacious than the unbelief of the people. But the good man was so severely tempted that he stumbled and fell. We have similar examples in the New Testament. Peter was strong and confident in his faith. When he saw Jesus walking on the water, he said, impelled by his strong faith. Lord, bid me come unto thee. Stepped out of the ship into the water. He was confident that the water would bear him. Peter had a remarkable faith and a bold spirit, so that he ventured upon the water in danger, yea, even death, making the venture boldly and daringly by reason of his faith in Christ. When he thought he was most secure, the wind and storm arose, and he forgot the word and lost faith. He fell, sank into the water, permitted Satan to tear faith out of his heart. Where was then his great faith? Faith is a tender, delicate thing, and we so easily make a mistake and are liable to stumble. But the devil is watchful, and unless men exercise watchfulness, he quickly gains his point. How strongly the people were inclined toward Christ. They regarded him as a prophet, followed him eagerly, defended him with a zeal that even the nobles of the people were amazed and did not dare to lay hands on him. When he had been seized and bound and led away and crucified, the people forsook him. Alas, alas, he's no longer a prophet. No one stands by him. Yea, instead they cry out, Crucify him, crucify him. What is still worse, his only disciples forsake him. Where now was their faith and holiness? So also we meet with similar occurrences in our day. At first, when the gospel was proclaimed, it was a lovely sermon. All the world desired to become Christian. Nobody opposed it. But when attacks were made on the monks, priests, and nuns, when the mass was criticized, alas, they fell like leaves from the trees. Afterwards, when the nobles were also attacked, the gospel was still more persecuted. And its reception began more and more to abate, so the devil does not rest yet, and hence he stirs up so many sects and factions. How many sects have we not already had? One has taken up the sword, taken up arms against the government. Another has attacked the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, 
others that of baptism. The devil does not sleep. He will do many more such things. He looks around and exerts himself to exterminate the pure doctrine in the church and will finally, it is feared, bring it to this that should one pass through all Germany, he would find no pure pulpit where the word of God is preached as in former days. He tries with all his might to prevent the pure doctrine from being taught, for he cannot endure it. Escape from the enemy is most difficult, for he lurks and watches everywhere and pursues his affairs so hard that even the learned fall and stumble, such as Moses, St. Peter, and the apostles. We think we are safe. We permit matters to drift along. No one is concerned for his own welfare and no one cares for it. We should pray and call on God to maintain the gospel and cause his holy name to be proclaimed more and more widely. But no one cares. No one prays for the advancement of the gospel. The consequence of this must be God will overthrow both us and Satan. Our end will be he will make us bite the dust. Through our own rashness and indifference, we shall fall into great misery. The devil also is able to present to the factitious spirits the idea that they regard themselves as right, like the Arians, who thought their cause was right. And there was no one who could decide whether or not their teachings were orthodox. The Christian, however, subdues his reason and does not deceive himself, but in humility says to God, Dear Lord, although I feel certain concerning the matter, yet without thee I cannot maintain it. Therefore help me, or else I'm lost. To be sure, you may feel certain of it, like Peter on the water. Could not well feel more sure that the water would bear him on. He knew of no more hindrance, but when the storm burst on him, he saw wherein he lacked. The heart must have... Thoroughly in its grasp, this idea that, although we may feel secure concerning the matter and have a scripture for it, be prepared and fortified in the best possible manner with clear proofs. It is the power, will, and might of God that protects us and defends us against the devil, our adversary, and most bitter foe. This occurs only, however, when God awakens us and keeps us in his fear so that we may always be concerned and cry to him, O Lord, help us, increase our faith, for without thee we are lost. Our heart should always be in the condition as if we had only begun to believe today and always be so disposed toward the gospel as if we had never before heard it. We should make a fresh beginning each day. The nature and character of faith is constantly to grow and become stronger. The devil, as has already been said, is not idle and has no rest. If he is struck down once, he will rise again. If he cannot enter at the front door, he sees to it that he enters at the rear. If he cannot effect an entrance in this way, he breaks in through the roof or he digs his way through underneath the door sill to 
boiling until he effects an entrance, employing all manner of cunning and schemes. If one fails, one way fails, he tries another and perseveres until he succeeds. So over against this, a poor man, weak creature as he is, as St. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This treasure is the gospel, but I am weaker than the vessel in the potter's hands. An earthen vessel is a weak thing and is easily broken and its contents spilled. Hence the devil, when he notices what a treasure faith is and in what a poor vessel it's kept, then he rages in storms and in his wrath he says to us, I'll strike you and shatter your vessel. You have a great treasure, but I'll spill it for you. I'll give you a blow. If I were permitted, how soon would I shatter the vessel? You are, after all, nothing but a poor and weak vessel of earth. Such a way has God placed this poor little vessel among enemies. How soon may it not therefore be destroyed? It may be broken with a club. Yea, if a serpent would prick it, it would go to pieces. It would be a little, it would be a small matter for Satan suddenly to ruin an entire country. Hence he is angry because God takes hold of the matter in such a bantering manner and confronts him with a poor little earthen vessel. Yet he is so great a prince and so powerful a lord of the world. I would also be vexed if I were a strong man and someone were to tickle me with a straw. I would undoubtedly crush the straw in my anger and would rather be met with spears, sword, and complete armor. Even as a strong Goliath was vexed because David without armor dared to approach him with a staff. Thus also the devil is angry because God wants to trample him underfoot by means of flesh and blood. If a mighty spirit were to oppose him, he would not be so sorely vexed. But it greatly angers him that a poor worm of the dust, a fragile earthen vessel, defies him, a weak vessel against a mighty prince. God has placed his treasure, says St. Paul, in a poor weak vessel, for man is weak, easily aroused to anger, avaricious, arrogant, weighed down with other imperfections, through which Satan easily shatters the earthen vessel. For if God would permit him, he would destroy all men just as he ruins many souls through false doctrine. Now all this happens, says St. Paul, in order that we may learn our inability to accomplish anything by our own strength, but alone by the power of God that he might overthrow him through the greatest weakness of flesh and blood and bring shame upon him. This angers the devil exceedingly. Therefore he goes about as a roaring lion in order to break and shatter to pieces the fragile vessel made of earth. 
See what he did with the prophets whom the peasants raised up? Certainly no one did this but the devil, who desired to shatter the vessels, and indeed did shatter many of them, so that faith and the scriptures fared badly amongst them. Indeed more factitious spirits shall arise, and it shall come to pass that they will not regard Christ as God, nor as the son of a virgin, well, the devil is so cunning and skillful that if one thing is taken from him, he makes use of another. Thus it's been from the beginning, and it will continue to be so in the future. And all this is permitted in order that we may be on our guard, lift our eyes to heaven, so that we may know and acknowledge God. And if we've made a beginning in faith, that God may nourish and protect the same and preserve the vessel by his power. But Satan would gladly break this earthen vessel and crush it under his feet. Others who belong to him he pushes hither and thither according to his pleasure and rejoices in them. This is intended to serve as an introduction to the gospel. Now we will consider the text in its proper order. Evangelist says, And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. This has occurred to other people also, namely that they have had sick children. But what is to be particularly noted here appears in these words. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Here begins the faith that depends on Christ. This gospel shows that he had faith, for he hears of Christ, how he heals the sick. His heart recognizes Christ, cleaves to him, and thinks thus, If he helps all others, he will also help me and heal my son. He regarded Christ as a person who could help men, and he expects every benefit from him. This indeed is the heart of a true Christian, since it leads him to attach himself to Christ. If, however, this nobleman had remained in doubt, he would not have come to Christ, but his heart would have been in a condition to say, He indeed helps others, but who knows if he'll help me also. He might have left the matter rest at this, but his faith was a living faith, hence he arose and went to Christ. This was the beginning of faith. Now you see how strangely and contrary to expectation Christ met him and how his faith was tried when he said to him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will in no wise believe. How are we to understand this? He says, Ye do not believe, and yet ye have faith. Thus the Lord also spoke to Peter in Matthew 14:31. Thou, O thou, little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Peter was confident and had faith, therefore he ventured out on the water. But when he saw the storm rage, he doubted and sank. So here also the nobleman had heard reports concerning Christ, that he was helping everybody. He believed this and came to him. But when he heard that Christ refused to come to him, he felt hurt. His faith dropped. He feared lest Christ would refuse to help him. This was a rebuff, and here began the trial of 
incipient faith, that is, initial faith. Well, this was a hard saying, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will in no wise believe. This expression was a trial of his faith and produced a doubt and caused him to stumble. The devil stood back of him and said, Return to your home, await the result, he will not help you. But the nobleman was not so easily repulsed, but said to the Lord, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Faith was ready to droop and sink, but the Lord did not forsake him, raised him up and said to him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. He must have had a pure faith, or else he would not have asked the Lord to come to his son. What then did he lack? This. He believed if Christ came to his house, he could heal his son, but unless he were present, he could not effect the cure. His faith was not strong enough to realize that Christ could heal without being present. Hence his faith had to attain a higher stage. His weak faith was gone, the little earthen vessel was shattered. He thought his son had to die. But Christ approached, raised him up, placed him on a higher plane of faith, and said to him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Thus the man advanced from his first faith when he believed that Christ could heal if he were present to a higher stage of faith by reason of which he now believed the mere word of Christ. For if he had not believed the word, then he would not have ceased until the Lord had accompanied him to his house. But he accepted the word, he believed Christ and clung to his word. For the Son was at home, and Christ was with the Father. The Father accepted the word of Christ and said in his heart, My son is ill, but I shall find him well. This was faith over against reason and experience. Reason would have led him to say, When I left, my son was ill. As you left him, so you'll find him. But faith says the contrary, stands firmly on the word, and drowns itself in it, does not at all doubt that it shall be as the word declares, Go thy way, the son liveth. This is a pure and strong faith that requires the individual to cast away all sense, understanding, reason, eyes and heart, and sink himself into one little word, and be satisfied with, and feel secure in it. Christ says, Thy son liveth. So he says to himself, It is certainly true, I shall find it so. Thus faith does not remain idle nor quiet, but progresses and rises higher. So Christ also deals with us and permits us to be tried in order to strengthen our faith. If at the close of our lives, when our time comes to die, we shall have a spark of such faith, it will be well with us, as Christ said to his disciples in the Gospel, Matthew 17:20. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. A mustard seed is very small, but he who has such a faith shall certainly be saved. The truth lies not in the fact that faith is small, but in that the mustard seed remains and is not destroyed by the birds. 
The devil cannot tear faith out of our hearts. It does not matter how insignificant faith may be, but the power lies in seeing to it that faith be not overthrown. Peter on the water retains his pure faith as long as he unhesitatingly ventured on the water according to the word of Christ, the word of Christ. For that reason the water bore him and he did not sink. Had he remained in his faith, he might have gone hundreds of miles on the water. But as soon as he wavered, he began to sink. So also Moses, who had a strong faith, but fell from it. Therefore, it does not matter whether faith be weak or strong, or strong or weak, but that it perseveres, no matter how weak it may be. It may happen that he who has a weak faith abides in it, but he who has a strong faith doubts and falls. Peter and Moses had great and strong faith, so that Moses, by faith, led the people of Israel through the midst of the sea and through death. But afterwards he and his brother fell, although God soon afterwards raised him up again. But the thief on the cross laid hold on faith once for all and clung to it. God deals with us in a way so as to put down arrogance and that we may not become haughty and wanton but always remain in his fear. For when temptation comes, we're liable to fall into error. We have a beautiful parable of this in the tree which begins to blossom in the spring and soon spreads out entirely covered with white blossoms. But as soon as rain falls on it, many of the blossoms are ruined and frost utterly destroys many more of them. Afterwards, when the fruit begins to appear and any wind happens to arise, much of the young fruit falls to the ground. When the tree has more fully developed, then caterpillars and worms make their appearance. They prick and destroy the fruit to such an extent that scarcely the twentieth part, yea, hardly a hundredth part, ripens. The same thing happens to the gospel. First, Everybody wants to become a Christian. It promises to do well and is pleasing to all men, but as soon as the wind or rain of temptation comes, large numbers fall away. Afterwards come the sects and factions, like worms and beetles, which prick and pollute the fruit of the gospel, and so much false doctrine is taught that only a few remain faithful to the gospel. This parable is a sign and picture of true faith. Therefore, we should not be too certain. Although we have a beginning, made a beginning in faith, nor deceive ourselves. But faith consists in this, that we may not be secure and presumptuous, but remain in fear. By the grace of God we are rich in the word of God and have been brought out of deep and great darkness. But we forget the word, become weak, continue unconcerned about the matter, and have no taste for it. If under these conditions false prophets should break in with their false teachings, and even the devil burst in, 
find a sidle and a house weapon garnished. He brings with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and our last state is worse than the first. And even if this should happen, we are not therefore to despair, but instruct one another, so that we cling to God and pray to him, saying, Merciful God, thou hast permitted me to become a Christian. Help me to continue to be one, and to increase daily in faith. Even if the whole world should fall, and each one conspire to do evil, and the devil break all the earthen vessels, Yet I will not be turned by it, but by thy divine help will abide in the gospel. Each one should think of the matter as if he were alone in the world, even as it will be in the death, in death at the end of the world, when no one will be concerned about others, but each one must be concerned about himself. Thus the faith of this man was most excellent and noble. He hears a single word, Thy son liveth. He believes it and goes home, gives the glory to God, grasps the word, clings to it, and does not grope after other things. Hence God also honors him in return, heals his son, lifts him up and increases his faith, does not permit him to remain in doubt and in weakness, makes him certain and strong in faith, permits him to continue and become stronger. Nor does he wait until the man has returned to his home, but while he is still on the way, allows the restoration of his son to be announced to him, permits his servants to meet him on the way, who bring him the joyous tidings, saying, Thy son liveth. For God cannot delay and remain outside where there is a true heart, which depends solely on him and clings to his word, lets everything else go and looks only to the word of God. In a case like this, God cannot hide himself, but permits himself to be seen and enters his heart, makes his abode there, as we read in St. John's Gospel, chapter 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and will, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The promise is there. He will keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Let's read that again. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. Isn't that Jesus, isn't that in that place, isn't Jesus putting himself equal with God? How can, how can Jesus come and live and dwell in a heart, all the hearts of all men, unless he himself is a spirit and equal to God the Father? He's going to do something with God the Father same power and strength as God the Father. That's a good verse. It shows his divinity, I'm thinking. Thus he richly manifested himself to this noble man, and for this reason, that we might understand the nature of this man's faith, namely an excellent and true faith that was produced purely by the word of God.
What is more blessed and joyous than to believe God's word and cling to it in the face of all temptations, shut the eyes to all temptations of the devil, to lay aside sense and understanding, reason and cunning, and unceasingly say in one's heart, God has spoken, he cannot lie. Nothing can be joy more joyful, I say, than such a faith. Well, whatever we ask of God in such faith, we receive more abundantly than we can ever imagine. And God is nearer to us than we can realize. In a word, it all depends upon our belief and trust in him. Therefore, the evangelist uses so many unnecessary words, as it seems to us, as these. Now, I notice here that this is a little different in Luther's version. It doesn't say the man believed the word that Jesus spake unto him. This is probably where Luther gets three, as our version only has two. It just says, and as he was now going down, first it says, and he went his way, and as he was now going down, his servants met him. Luther's version says, the man believed the word that Jesus spake unto him, and he went his way. So that's added in there. And as he was now going down, his servants met him, told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend, and they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed in his whole house. All this means that if we believe and trust in God, we shall know that he will richly give us all things for which we pray. And the evangelist then concludes the gospel with these words. And himself believed in his whole house. Thus his faith had increased, not only that he had risen from a lower to a higher stage of faith, but also that he had caused the members of his household to believe. He did not merely abide in faith, but he had an active faith, which did not lie still and idle in his heart, but broke forth and was exposed to others, preached Christ to others, and praised him before them, teaching them, or telling them rather, how that he had come to Christ, received consolation from him, and how he had received help through his faith, so that all who were in his house had to believe. For it is the character and nature of faith that it attracts other people, breaks forth, and becomes active in love. St. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, Faith worketh through love. It is a thing that avails, for it lives and can neither remain silent nor inactive, as King David says in Psalm 116, 10, and as Paul, referring to believers, says, 2 Corinthians 4.13 I believed and therefore have I spoken. Faith, faith cannot do otherwise. It must break forth and speak. It cannot remain quiet for it desires to benefit its neighbor. This man had faith for himself but it did not remain such but broke forth. For he doubtless preached to his household, telling them how he had come to Christ, 
received comfort from him. No doubt they believed his words. Thus we see if we believe we are to open our mouths and confess the grace that God has shown us. This also is the greatest and best work of faith, namely to inform and teach others in the word. For as St. Paul says in Romans 10.10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If one is ashamed of the word and hides it, it's a sign of a lack of faith, or a lax faith. Thus we see that Christ makes no distinction between weak and strong faith and rejects no one. For weak faith is also faith, and if it only continues, it will ever grow stronger. He came into the world to receive the weak and to carry and sustain them. If he were as impatient as we are, he would at once say to us, Depart from me, I will have nothing to do with you, for you do not believe as you ought. Who could receive help from him? But the great art of Christ is to know how to deal gently. How to deal gently with the weak, not to knock them about and impatiently drive them away. For even though today they may not be strong, it may happen in an hour's time that they grasp the word more richly than we. We regard ourselves as strong. Thus we should teach one another to cling to his word, for if we abide in his word, we shall be sufficiently fortified against the devil. For we have a defiance of him in the word. Even though we ourselves are weak. He's saying we can defy the devil in the word, even though we ourselves are weak. But to the devil in an hour's time could break in pieces all earthen vessels. All men would be as a feather, and he would blow, or he could blow them when where he wished. But this feather shall become heavier for him than heaven and earth. For a Christian has Christ within himself, but Christ is heavier than heaven and earth. This must suffice concerning this gospel. Now there is one more paragraph which says, We have made a beginning in the attempt to formulate a German Mass. You know that the Mass is the most important office, external office, that has been instituted for the comfort of true Christians. Therefore I beseech you, Christians, that you may pray and supplicate God that this work may be acceptable to him. You've often heard that no one should teach unless he knows that this is the word of God. Likewise, nothing should be ordered or arranged unless we know that it is acceptable to God. Nor should we depend on our reason, for unless it begins of its own accord, nothing will come of it. For this reason I have hesitated so long with reference to the German Mass, in order that I might not give any encouragement to the sectarian spirits who rush into things without thought, have no regard whether it's God's pleasure or not. But now, since so many people from all countries have requested me by petitions and letters, since the secular government forces me to it, we could not well excuse ourselves and evade the matter, but must regard it as the will of God. There is anything, therefore, in this work that is human and our own, 
that it fall and perish, even though it have a grand and fine appearance. But if it is a work of God, it must go forward, even though it appear foolish. Therefore all things that God does, even though not acceptable to anyone, must prosper. Therefore I beseech you to pray the Lord, that if it is proper or correct mass, then it may be maintained to his honor and glory. Amen. Now I'll read some from the Loy edition. And this is on page 534, book number 2. In this gospel lesson we have two points which are full of comfort. First is a miracle by which our dear Lord Jesus heals a sick boy without even going near him. Only telling his father, Go thy way, thy son liveth. The boy is healed by this word, although he was miles away and knew nothing of that word. Now this is an excellent and great miracle from which we learn the almighty power of the word. Whatever he promises, he will surely keep. Neither the devil nor wicked men shall be able to prevent him. For we must consider this disease as any other work by which the devil torments poor men. To destroy such works of the devil, we need nothing but the word of our dear Lord Jesus, and it is done. As soon as this word is spoken, the devil is compelled to leave. This miracle is intended to serve in the first place that we may learn to know Christ, that he is not merely a man as other men are, that he is also eternal and almighty God, that he is Lord over death and the devil, and that he is a Lord who is able to overcome those wicked powers by a word. Hence we also should apply to him for help in our troubles against the devil and his works, like the nobleman did. Especially should we appreciate his word as an all-sufficient power. Whoever has his word is able to do all things. Whoever is without the word can be saved from sin, death, and the devil by no other power, wisdom, or holiness. For well, whatever our dear Lord Jesus here does in behalf of the son of the nobleman, when by a powerful word he saves him from death and restores him to life, he will also do for us all if only we would accept it. He will not merely deliver us from bodily diseases and temporal troubles, but also from sin and eternal death. We should therefore follow the example of the nobleman and apply to Christ for counsel and help in all our troubles. It's an easy matter for him to help us in our distress. He needs but to speak the word and we are delivered. He is besides very willing to help us. The noble man is in great haste and wants to avoid every delay. But the Lord is in still greater haste and is not willing to leave the son of the noble man in danger till he and his father could reach him, but heals him at once, even at a distance. And at the very moment when he said to the Father, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Thus the Lord Jesus is no doubt willing to help us if in all confidence we ask him. He was sent upon earth for the purpose of delivering us from sin, death, and the tyranny of the devil. Translate us into the eternal kingdom of God. 
For this purpose the Father, our merciful God in heaven, has sent him, and for this purpose alone did he come. Whoever therefore desires and seeks help against sin and death shall surely find it, as we here learn from the nobleman, who merely sought bodily help. How much more willing will not the Lord be to help us out of a far greater danger and when we are in far greater need of his help, when our eternal salvation is at stake? This is the first point of which we commonly preach when the miracles of Christ are treated upon, and they are wrought and described to us that we may learn to know the power and the good will of our dear Lord Jesus Christ and draw nigh unto him in every time of need. The other point in our narrative, and which is most generally enlarged upon, is the excellent example of faith from which we can well learn what faith is. The scriptures speak of faith as a means by which we obtain forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life. As St. Paul says in Romans 3, we therefore conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And as the prophet Habakkuk says, the just shall live by his faith. Christ to Mary, whose sins had been forgiven, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. Such faith is not found with the devil nor false Christians who know the history as well as the true Christians. The devil knows Christ very well and also what he has done and suffered upon earth. This a Christian must also know, and yet it's not the true faith by which we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But here we read what true faith is, namely nothing else but believing what Christ says and promises without wavering. This belongs together. Whenever God makes a promise, it is in our place to hold it or hold to it with all our heart and not doubt its truth, though as yet we do not have the fulfillment, nor do we see it. If we have the promise and depend upon it with all our heart, doubt not in the least, then we have true and living faith. This we learn from the nobleman. He came to Christ and asked him to go with him and to help his son. He had confidence in the Lord Jesus that he was able and willing to help him. Such confidence was as yet without the word and rested upon the miracle which the Lord had performed in Galilee at the marriage. Of this an old man had undoubtedly heard, and he is induced thereby to trust in the Lord Jesus that he will also help him. This we may call faith, but it's yet a weak faith. The promise had not yet been given and the faith or confidence, as we call it, still rested upon an uncertain opinion. It's a question yet whether Christ will help or not. In case he will help, the nobleman will take him to be a great saint. If not, he will not esteem him so highly. The Savior therefore meets him rather harshly, saying, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. As though Christ would say, Faith shall not rest upon signs and wonders, but upon the word. Signs and wonders may be erroneous and deceptive, but whoever trusts in the word cannot be deceived, for God's promises are sure and cannot lie. Though the Lord has done signs and wonders in order to draw attention and to induce people to believe, 
yet it was his main object to teach the people to look more to his word than to the signs which are only intended as a testimony to the word. It was not his first object to deliver this or that person from bodily sickness. His main object in office was to point people to the word, to engraft it into their hearts so that they might be saved thereby. Well, because this nobleman had as yet no word or sure promise from Christ, he could have no certainty of faith. From the miracle at Cana and from other people, of other reports concerning Christ as a new prophet, he takes courage to apply to Christ for the help of his son, feeling confident that he can help him. But this faith does not yet go beyond the help expected. Hence he is in a great hurry and fears the delay of the Savior by which his son will be the loser. So this is yet far from being the true faith. He argues in this way, if Christ will not come in person to seek or see the sick, he will not be helped. And again, if Christ will delay his coming and my son die in the meantime, all will again be in vain. How could the noble man as yet think different? He had no word, neither promise to rely upon. But when Christ opened his mouth and said, Go thy way, thy son liveth, true and perfect faith follows, which, according to its nature, clings to the promise of Christ, as we learn from the nobleman. He believes the words of Christ, goes his way, puts full confidence in the promise, and doubts not in the least that on coming home he will find his son sound and well. So learn now what it means to believe. It means nothing else than to trust in the word and promises of Christ as sure and certain, though we do not see it or feel it. It is a peculiar nature of faith to deal in things not yet present. Things present we do not need to believe. We see and feel them. A rich man who has plenty of money and goods doesn't need to believe at the present state he's in that there's necessity of maybe starving. But it's different in the case of a poor man who cleaves to the promise of God's word, trusting that God, his heavenly Father, will provide. If on his part, in the fear of God, he is faithful in his calling, he truly believes. And it is impossible that such faith should be disappointed. It rests on the words of Almighty God, promises that if we seek first the kingdom of God, then all these things shall be added unto us. We all experience that by sin, every one of us has been poisoned to such a degree that we are void of righteousness altogether. And as the word promises forgiveness of sins and righteousness through Christ, this word cannot be accepted otherwise than by faith. Christian is in a your situation in himself he is altogether sinful according to the word and faith he is without sin he is pure and righteous this is the glorious effect of faith and can never be reached by works as the servants of the Pope preach as to works be they ever so good we are at best but unprofitable servants in performing them as the Lord tells us in Luke 17 as I have said concerning righteousness, so must I also say concerning life. 
we are thoroughly drowned by sin in death so that we are not secure for a single moment and have to admit the truth as held by the Gentiles even that after man's birth there is nothing more surely to come upon him than death. From the example of others and ourselves we learn and experience continually how suddenly man may be overthrown by diseases and other calamities. Yet in this veil of tears we have the word that is full of consolation, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. This we who believe do not hold in our hands. We do not see it and grasp it, but it is promised in the word, and we believe it. And it is certain that by having this faith we shall not be put to shame, because it rests upon the word of God, which is eternal and almighty. The word promises future eternal and heavenly gifts, so it is the nature of this faith to lay hold on these gifts as though they were already present, to shut out all doubts. It takes it for granted that the word of God is almighty and that God is true and no liar. Faith has a keen eye for the word of God. If it is sure that it has the word of God, it feels safe against the devil and the world and is certain of the victory in spite of the devil. Again, when faith has no word of God, then it is, then it is uh, not induced by appearances nor the threatenings or power of the world. To hold that to be true for which it has no ground, it would rather suffer any consequences, be they what they may. If in the papacy we had followed this faith, we would not have been so misled shamefully and brought into idolatry and error. But we had lost sight of God's word, and instead of believing, we had fallen upon works as though we could thereby obtain remission of sins and thereby false worship and idolatry came into the church, and we lost our goods, not only our goods, but also our souls. Hence it is most necessary and beneficial to know what it means to have true faith, namely to have the word and promises of God and to trust in that word, being assured that it will be fulfilled to the very letter. To believe anything without the word is no faith at all, but a mere illusion, just as if you believe that you are to become emperor of Rome. If you even firmly resolved upon this, it would never come to pass. But when David in his low estate received the word of God by the prophet Samuel that he should become king of Israel, he had to become king in spite of all that Saul could do against it. So in this way we have the word and promises of God as for instance, our dear Lord comforts the whole world when he says in John 8, If a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. And again, John says of him that this is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. These are universal passages from which no one is excluded. The Lord does not say, If this one or that one believes in me, but if a man, that is any man, keep my saying, he shall never see death. Neither does John say that God has sent his Son as a propitiation of the sins of this one or that one, but for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, because you are a sinner and in the world, accept the offer, and doubt not in the least that you are intended and included, 
This is the foundation upon which faith must rest as regards the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If our faith is based upon such a foundation, we shall not be disappointed as we learn from the experience of the nobleman. And we should not suppose that the nobleman had any advantage over us so that he could more easily be induced to believe because the Lord addressed him in person, saying, Go thy way, thy son liveth. While for us it's more difficult to believe because we are not so personally included in the word, but must appropriate it to ourselves when spoken in general. Now this is not the intention, nor has our dear Lord Jesus proclaimed this doctrine to us in a general way merely. But as he said to the nobleman, Go thy way, thy son liveth. So he also says to every one of us in particular, My son, thy sins are forgiven thee, thou shalt have eternal life. And to whom does God speak, and with whom does he deal when you are baptized? Is it not true that such baptism is intended for you and for no one else? You enjoy your baptism, not others. If they want to enjoy baptism, they must be baptized themselves. And what does God tell you and everyone that is baptized? His assurance is, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And again, you are baptized into the death of Christ. He has suffered death for you to redeem you from sin and death. How could God speak to you more cheerfully and in his word refer to you more definitely and particularly than he does in your baptism, which is really yours and pertains to no one else? And when you long for the forgiveness of sins and apply to the servant of the church or to any other Christian with a view of obtaining the word of God, the comforts you need, do you not really hear the doctrine that Christ died for the sins of the world, which is preached publicly and in general, applied to you in particular for your own personal appropriation? Now we will finish this sermon here. It says, Here we may judge what manner of Christians those are who for a long while do not desire absolution or come to the blessed supper of the Lord. Now we have to cut this short, but the rest of this is pretty much repetition of what we already heard.